Our loving Father, we do thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that you have made yourself known, um, in Christ in particular and through your word. And we pray that as we um, look at this scripture this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would help us hear what you have to say, and that by your spirit you would transform our lives so that we might put it into practice and apply it. Uh, Father, please be with me, help me dust off the, uh, the rust, and, uh, and may we all be built up and edified by you this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, who do you envy? And I don't mean it so much in the kind of embittered, uh, green-eyed monster kind of way. I mean it more in the perhaps the, the more wistful, everyday tug of longing that at some point pulls away at most of us. Who do you look at and you go, gee, they've got it good. Can you picture who they might be? Um, I've come back from, a, as I've said, from a couple of months of long service leave and it, and it was lovely and I've got no doubt that many people go, well, that's pretty enviable. <laughs> you got to go to Europe and all of that, that was great. But I tell you what, uh, this is the wistful tug of longing that I had when I was over there. It was after the eight-hour flight to Singapore and then an hour and a half sort of lay over there and followed by another 14-hour flight to Paris having to crawl over people and go to the, to to go to the toilet, having no leg room, having hardly any sleep because the kids in front want to keep adjusting their seat back in front of you and you've got your food in there and it's going all over the place. My headphone jack didn't work in the, in the video kind of thing. Who did I envy? Well, it was when I was walking out. There's two words, business class. <laughs> and I went, oh... <laughs> And I'm looking at their spacious cubicles and their large screens and their fully, you know, reclinable wide-back seats. Of course, you don't get to see the first class. They're squirreled away from the hoi polloi like us. But anyway, it was hard not to sigh and go, oh, how good would that be after 22 hours? Um, but maybe it's something else for you. Maybe it's that you see displays of talent by people that you go, oh, I wish I had that. Especially if it's in an area that you're interested in. Well, maybe it would, it's wealth or, or beauty someone's intelligence, their sporting ability, their charisma. Could be someone's family life, the holidays they go on, those sorts of things. Now, you might use different words to describe what you're seeing. You might call them blessed. Well, that blessed life that is. You might call them fortunate or privileged. But their lives seem to have been touched by God in a way that most others haven't been. And in the randomness of life and circumstances, they seem to have ended up with the good stuff. Well, you seem to have just variations on mediocrity. Well, I think today's passage is going to challenge us, actually, to look again. To look again at both our own lives and the truth about them and how we look at others and make a reassessment. What does a life touched by God really look like? What qualities does it have? What characteristics really should be desired and envied, whose future is really brightest. Today we're going to begin looking at the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Now, to help get us up to speed, um, where it's, it starts in chapter 5, so up until... Why is that? Who's got their phone going off in my sermon? <laughs> I'm going to give this away because it's still doing something. And I don't know what that is. See, this is what All spending... Right. <laughs> 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 
All right, now to refocus, as having distracted us all myself. All right, so Matthew's been walking us through the early life of Jesus so far, okay? We've seen through his earliest years, Matthew gives us um, the birth of Christmas accounts, all the way through to the baptism of John, um, and his temptation in the wilderness. We've gone through that and to the beginning of his ministry in Galilee. But let's think about what was his ministry. Well, chapter 4, verse 17, if you've got your Bibles open with us, tells us, says, from that time on, this is a very blanket phrase, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right, so this was Jesus' message, that the long-awaited kingdom of God promised in the Old Testament that would be led by His King, the Messiah, is now at hand. Right? In other words, if you want a word picture kind of thing, it's no longer off in the distance, it's, it's imminent. Um, a kingdom, the Kingdom of Heaven has arrived in your village. It's walking down the main street right now towards your house. It's nearing your front gate and about to knock on your door. That's what it means that it's near. You better get ready. And what does getting ready look like, according to Jesus? What's the word? Repent. That's what he tells his people to do. Repent. In other words, you've got to change. The nearness of the Kingdom of Heaven is good news, but as things are, he says to the people of Israel, you're not ready for it. You better start cleaning up all the rubbish. You better start putting the right things back in the right places. You better start thinking about God the right way and paying attention to His Word again. Because the clock is ticking, the Kingdom of God is near. And the last part of chapter 4 shows that as Jesus went about teaching about the Kingdom, He showed signs of the goodness of this incoming Kingdom by what He was doing when He healed the sick, the possessed those who, who were afflicted with various maladies. And so crowds, when he does all that, start to flock. And we're told they come from all over the region, like a really broad part of the land. They all come to see Jesus, to hear him and to participate in what he's doing. And they follow him wherever he goes. And so that's what leads us up to where we begin today, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that for you. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, let me point out a couple of uh, important details as Jesus begins this sermon. First of all, to understand that the sermon is not intended for the crowds. Right? That's an important thing to pick up here. Jesus didn't go up on that hillside, like, like in Mark's Gospel, he goes out on a boat to speak to the crowd so that everyone could see him, everyone could hear him. He's not, that's not what he's doing when he goes up on the hillside. He's not going so he can be seen and heard better. He goes in, he's going up to move away from the crowds, to create some distance from the crowds. Jesus' teaching on the mount is intended for his disciples. Those who have already responded to his teaching about the Kingdom of Heaven who have decided to follow him, they become his followers, his students, as it were. Now, by the end of the sermon, we're going to find out that it's quite clear that crowds found him and they trapped and they started to hear some of the things that were being said. But the sermon is not intended for them. It's for insiders, not outsiders. His sermon is aimed at teaching his disciples what life for those who belong to the Kingdom of Heaven is meant to look like, how they are meant to think, how they're meant to act, in contrast to everyone else who's living around him who aren't ready yet. 
Second, there is a, a formality to these first two verses that may be hard for you to spot at first. So, Jesus sits down, His disciples come to Him, and verse 2 in the original literally reads, and opening His mouth, a redundant detail you would think, and opening His mouth, He taught them, saying. So, you see how often when you're looking at narrative, the way it slows us down. And as it slows us down, the importance, the gravitas of the occasion is heightened. He sits down, they come near and he opens his mouth. This is, this is something big. He has an important word that he wants his followers to listen to. Like a rabbi teaching his students? Yes. And it's easy to see some parallels with Moses, isn't there? You know, who goes up on Mount Sinai, who's given the law of God and then he passes that on to, to the people. But Jesus' words are going to come with a powerful communication of his own authority that Moses did not have and did not do. He's going to show himself not to be the messenger of righteousness, but the master of righteousness. In this way, he's perhaps a little less like a rabbi and more like a king who is seating, seated and is opening his mouth to proclaim to his subjects his will for them in his father's kingdom. Alright, so how does this great word begin? Well, Jesus starts his great discourse by helping his disciples to understand that the values of the kingdom of heaven are different from the values of the world around us. Jesus lists eight characteristics of those who are approved by God, those who enjoy His favour. And they're famously known as the Beatitudes. Now, I used to get confused when I was a kid, I was thinking, I know what an attitude is, what's a B-attitude? Is that an attitude that a B has? Ha <laughs> ha, very funny sort of pun. I, I go, it's a dumb word, no one says this word, right? This is, this is where it comes from. The word actually, the Beatitude, comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed, right? So, they're blessings, they're Beatitudes. But what exactly is a beatitude? In what way is this a blessing? Now, that's actually a reasonable question to ask because there's a two different words in Greek that can be translated blessed, but they mean blessed in a different way. Let me use the social media tag, hashtag blessed, to try and illustrate what I'm talking about. So, someone might be putting up a post about this beautiful meal they've enjoyed at this nice restaurant with their family and it's overlooking the water and it's a warm sunny afternoon and they've got the right filter on the shot that they put up there and then they add hashtag blessed. Now what they might be trying to say through that post is really, look, hey, how nice is this, right? I feel really fortunate to be living this life and having this experience and this is just a sign that this, this, this is a feeling of goodness, right? But someone else might be posting about a Christian conference that they're attending, where they heard this really challenging talk that really opened their eyes to something and, and where the songs were particularly encouraging um, for them in that moment and where they got caught up with a Christian friend and that fr Christian friend just had the right thing to say at the right time, it was so helpful and they put that up there and then they say, hashtag blessed. They're meaning something different, aren't they? What they mean by it is, God really showed His goodness to me in an overt way this weekend. I feel blessed by Him by these specific things. 
Look, you would be right to be thankful to God for both things. The Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, is from God. They're right to be thankful for. But one is more generally describing a, a goodness of the situation and the second is describing a specific God that good that God is working on your behalf in that time. Now, in both the Hebrew and the Old, of the Old Testament and in the Greek of the New, these two different kinds of blessings are described using a different set of words. So, one set of words describes the more specific, direct, theologically loaded kind of blessing, right? Like the blessing that is given to Abraham of land and descendants and so on. Or, or the bestowing of a blessing on a congregation, you know, that more formal kind of thing. And another pair of Hebrew and Greek words is used to describe the more general state that you might describe as being a blessed state, right? And that second kind is the one that's used in the Beatitudes. And a famous Old Testament example of what a Beatitude would be is in Psalm chapter 1, the very first Psalm. Have a look at this, it's famous, right? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. See, the psalmist is saying, such a person in the sight of God is on a good wicket, as you might put it. They sit enjoying God's favour. And so, Beatitudes are essentially commendations, congratulations, statements to the effect that a person is in a good situation and sometimes it can even be used as an expression of, of um, joyful or maybe not so joyful envy that they are in such a situation. One British scholar actually felt that the closest English language equivalent to the sentiment that's expressed by these words, he said, is an Australian idiom, good on ya. Good on ya, he thinks, is the best translation of the word that's here in the Beatitudes. Now, why am I teasing out all this dis difference? Like, because it impa impacts how we understand Je what Jesus is saying here, right? Jesus is not telling us that, for instance, one who is poor in spirit or who mourns or is merciful is someone who's been specifically gifted and blessed by God with that attribute. Jesus is saying, in the Kingdom of Heaven, the person with such qualities is one who was, is in a good situation. They are commended by God. Jesus is saying, this, this is the person who has a good. This is the blessed person because whatever. So let's have a look at those now. And the eight, eight Beatitudes come in two groups of four. The first group focuses really more internally on the inside, the, the, they are blessed for what they grasp or see, I guess you could say, about themselves. And the second set of four are more outward, they are, they are blessed for how they live out their lives. And as things that our King commands, all eight of them are what someone who is in the Kingdom of Heaven should want to be. And one thing you're going to see from this list of those whom Jesus says are on a good wicket is that none of the things that the world around us might list as enviable characteristics of the good life, none of them are in it. There is no blessed of the popular 
or blessed are the beloved, or blessed are the talented, or the confident. Jesus doesn't say good on you to the go-getters, the entrepreneurial, the successful, or the wealthy. They're just not rating in this. When the king tells us what is truly valued and who is favoured in the kingdom of heaven, those things just aren't on the radar. The Sermon on the Mount is going to turn a lot of people's assumptions on their head and Jesus wastes no time doing that. So let's work our way through them. I'll spend a bit more time on the first four than the second four. So first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what an extraordinary place to start. What does Jesus mean? Poor in spirit. This is, this is spiritual stuff, he's a spiritual teacher, wouldn't being rich in the spirit be a good thing in the kingdom of heaven, right? What, what's this poor in the spirit stuff? Well, this is where it's helpful to know that a lot of these are drawing, importantly, from Old Testament passages. There's an Old Testament background to what Jesus is saying here. So, have a look at Isaiah 66, it'll come up on the screen, and the, and the contrast that gets set up between the spiritually poor and those that might have considered themselves spiritually rich. Let me read to you. These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull, it's like one who kills a person. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. See, that the poor in spirit is a very positive thing, actually, in the Old Testament. These are the people who wait on God who trust in Him and are not trusting in themselves, who know what they don't have and know that they need God and continually look to Him for their salvation. That's the poor in spirit. And God says, good on you. You're the person I favour. That's what I'm looking for. But those who parade their spirituality and proudly assume themselves to be worthy of everything, while stubbornly refusing to acknowledge their sin, are a walking, talking offence to God, as that that Isaiah passage sort of showed. So Jesus kicks off the whole Sermon on the Mount by saying that God looks with favour on those who know that, spiritually, they've got nothing to boast in. Nothing. Those who know that they need God. And if you want to see God's stunning grace put in the starkest of terms, have a look at the second half of that verse. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I have nothing, we say. Good on you. Have everything, is what God says. And notice the tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Many of these are going to be looking forward and saying what will be, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Such a person is in, now. Your membership's been registered. Heaven will be yours as an inheritance. Blessed indeed. All right, let's have a look at the second, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, this is confronting, because surely the last person who would consider themselves blessed is the person who is in mourning. What possible value is there in grief 
and distress. How on earth could it be, ever be considered to be a good wicket to be on? Because mourning here extends beyond bereavement. Any person whose situation is just wretched, their, their life could be said to be as one in mourning. But if we read this as saying that somehow misery isn't misery, we've misunderstood what Jesus is trying to say here. Misery is misery. <laughs> um, but, but what he is saying is that for those who are in the kingdom, mourning gets transformed. This also has got an Old Testament background to it from Isaiah 61. And this passage is a message of hope and restoration for a devastated Israel. Let me look at it, read it for you. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So, so the Apostle Paul would later encourage the suffering Thessalonian Christians not to grieve as those without hope, because that's not their situation. Uh, later on, Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians, he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. So those who belong to the kingdom of heaven, because they follow Jesus, are blessed even in the midst of their grief. For God is with them. And His promise to them is, you will be comforted. So such a person in the midst of their suffering can know that their distress is not the last page in their story. Everlasting life is... Jesus says to the mourner who longs for God's comfort, you're blessed because you'll receive it eternally, the comfort of God. And so we're starting to see now a pattern to these blessings, aren't we? They turn our expectations on their head. And that continues with a third, blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. All right, let's ask the question again, who are the meek? Well, again, it helps to know that Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 37 here. Let's have a look at verses 7 to 11 of Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. And though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So meek is often translated in the New Testament as, as gentle. So the meek of those, Jesus even himself, describes himself as being gentle and meek. The meek are those who appear to be, perhaps, disadvantaged or powerless they're the humble in status, but they're also the humble in attitude, right? They're not arrogant, they're not grasping after things like the wicked. They wait on the Lord, their hope is in Him. Even as others after grasp after all they can get, 
They wait. They don't push into the front of the queue. They don't scramble over each other. And Jesus says, good on you. Good on you. You're the one that the Lord esteems and you won't miss out. In no way will you miss out. Others might push ahead of you in the queues of life while you strive to do what is right by God and others. They might stride past you and and even walk right over the top of you and anyone else who gets in the way. But in the end, you will stride past them. They will inherit nothing. You will inherit the earth. It's okay. Stay where you are. Keep being meek. Keep being gentle. That's not how the winner wins in the kingdom of heaven. So you're noticing how full of grace these verses are, right? Each one of those, these, have people seeing what they themselves lack and they're depending upon God and they're getting it, they're receiving it. And that pattern continues in the fourth beatitude, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. And I think this is one of the easiest to understand and even relate to. I I take it this, this is a longing that resonates with many of us that deep longing to be the person that God wants us to be and that frustration with our failings and and our sin and the desire to have our act together that almost could be described as being hungry for it and thirsty for it because we feel our absence of what we so desire or it's inadequacy anyway. Well, in Jesus we see what we want to be and we long to please Him and, and to live in a way worthy of all that He's done for us. But then we see ourselves and we know how short we fall and so we're hunger, we, we, we thirst. That longing for righteousness, Jesus says, good on you, good on you. Here's a promise for you, that longing will be fulfilled. The righteousness that you so hunger and thirst for, you'll have. And in the fullness of the gospel story, we find out how, don't we? Because Jesus dies and he, and he pays the penalty for all of that sin. And Jesus will rise again for our justification, we're told. Our sin atoned for, we will be clothed in his righteousness, counted righteous by God as Jesus is. And when finally we make it to heaven in its fullness, no trace of sin will ever remain in us, ever. So keep hungering and keep thirsting because God will fill you. That's His promise. See, these first four Beatitudes are so jarring, aren't they, with the way that the world looks at life and what it values and what's prized and precious. Jesus is saying, look, The person who truly has a good is the one who actually sees what they don't have in themselves and so humbly looks to God and depends on Him. Because the person who knows they need God's grace is going to receive it in abundance because He's got lots of it. Well, the second four Beatitudes are more perhaps outward in focus. If the first four detail how we are blessed... If we see things a certain way about ourselves, then the second four show how we are blessed by being the kind of people that God esteems. Now, we'll move through these ones a little bit more quickly. Verse 7, blessed to the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, you don't have to have your eyes too wide open to see how stunningly judgmental our world is at the moment. 
it seems to be increased. Maybe I'm naive to what it used to be like, but certainly it's a pretty judgy world that we live in. We are increasingly making a virtue of intolerance. We cancel or block out those that have got opinions that are different to ours. We can take sides quickly, then we dig trenches around it and put water in the moat around it and we write off anyone who's not on our side of the fence. We can be quick to condemn, we can be slow to forgive. Now, people will disagree, of course, and they will have conflicts with one another. That's the reality of life, isn't it? In a fallen world, where none of us are pure. But Jesus says, let me tell you who is the one who has it good. The merciful. They've got it right. The one who's ready to forgive offences. The one who will listen charitably to those with whom they disagree. The one who doesn't seek to take revenge when they've been hurt or slighted. The one who is prepared to give others a second chance, maybe a third chance, maybe a fourth chance, and who's happy to leave justice to God. To such a person, Jesus says, good on you, good on you. And the reward God will show them, well, there's a bit of jarring reminder in the reward. They will be shown mercy. There's a sting in that, isn't there? The merciful don't get to thump their chest and brag about how wonderfully good they are by being merciful. Because they get reminded that as sinners, they themselves need God's mercy or they're going to perish. Far better to be merciful and shown mercy than condemn others and stand condemned. But the next beatitude might seem to clash with what I've just said, Because have a look at it with me at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, who do you think fits into that category? Haven't I just said no one does? If we all need God's mercy, if we're poor in spirit, if we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, doesn't that suggest that no one's pure in heart? Well, if we understand pure or clean as being perfect, um, then we do have a problem. But but what this is describing is the person whose heart genuinely longs for God and to draw near to Him and to be in His presence. If the person who earnestly, even if not perfectly, seeks to reject idolatry and pursue holiness, this is what that's talking about. See, again, there's an Old Testament background to this. Look at what David writes in Psalm 24 that was read to us earlier. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. But tellingly, David wrote another psalm later on in his life that describes the same thing, but from the standpoint of one who had just had a staggering fall from grace... In Psalm 51, having been called out for adultery and murder, this is what David writes, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's that parallel thing that the Hebrews did. Create me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Give me back that longing for you that I have strayed from. The one who seeks after God's, Jesus says, good on you, you're on a good thing because you're going to have your heart's desire 
in the end, you will get to see God. You will get to stand in His presence and see Him face to face. Well, the final two Beatitudes show that the Kingdom of Heaven is not a holy huddle. The Christian life is not to be one of contemplative isolation where we just work on our own faults and let others work on theirs. God wants His people to engage with those around them and be agents of good, be agents of the Kingdom of Heaven in in the world around them. Look at verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. The path of least resistance in life might appear to be that you avoid those with whom you're in conflict, that you stay well away from other people's relationship problems and it may even be to let those who want nothing to do with God stay estranged from Him, that's their problem, not yours, isn't it? But Jesus looks with favour on those who don't run away but who seek to make peace. When we walk across the room in order to heal, when we work to help reconcile relationship with other, of others and particularly when we seek to reconcile others to God and take on that ministry, Jesus says, good on you. And you know why? Because that is what God Himself does. That's what He is like. And when we do that, we show, don't we, that we take after Him. They will be called children of God. And there can be no higher status, can there, than being called His child. And the final beatitude is the longest. Verses 11 and 12 really are expanding on verse 10. It's one long one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now in many ways this has got to be the most confronting of the eight I think. When we engage with the world around us we're engaging with a different world to the one we belong to because we belong in the kingdom of heaven. Those who belong to God's kingdom live in a world that's opposed to God. And so Jesus' final beatitude is kind of saying, own that, own that. And when you cop it because you're seeking to honour me in that world as you're holding out the word of life in it, good on you. You are lining yourself up beside the great prophets of the Old Testament who stood firm for God too. Being persecuted for righteousness, suffering for Christ, marks you out in God's eyes as a great one and the Kingdom of Heaven is your reward. The wider world rarely acknowledges the truth that Christianity is far and away the most persecuted religion in the world. An article in the Sydney Morning Herald just recently pointed out that 365 million Christians that is one in every seven, is at high or extreme risk of persecution every day because of their faith. You're not going to read about that in a lot of the media, thankfully the Herald actually put it in. How do you feel about that though? How should the people who are copying it feel about that? How do you feel about it when you're being given a hard time for your faith? in ways that you might go, gee, that's, whoa, that's, that's harsh, that's unfair, that's... Do you know what? Jesus doesn't pity 
those who were persecuted for him. He's proud of them. He calls them to rejoice, be glad, because they are being lined up with him and with the great ones of old. And he says, I will not fail to reward those who stand up for me. You know, the Beatitudes turn so much of what we value in this world on their head. It's so easy, even as Christians, to see great significance in things that God sees as insignificant. And to see insignificance in the things that God esteems. I think the Beatitudes should challenge us to look again at ourselves and the world around us. So much of what we see, maybe even within our own selves, as, as you struggling, as you being a failure, as you not being good enough, feeling inadequate, longing to be more righteous than you are, looking at the gifts and talents and comparing those with others who go, well, they're more impressive than me, I'm just, I'm just on the back scenes, I just do things behind closed doors. Seeing ways that we're not getting ahead perhaps financially or relationally because we've been prioritising things of God... And so we seem to see other people striding past us and we can feel a bit like we're helpless. Does that resonate with you at all? Do you think, oh yeah, that's kind of me? Well, so many of these things, Jesus is saying, no, you're actually on the right path. God is showing you his favour and grace. You are blessed. He's going, keep going. So often when we're seeing in ourselves inadequacy, God's saying, that's what I want to see because you're going to lean on me and you're going to call on me to help and I'll do it. That's winning. You're blessed. And so often we despise it and think of it as these other things. And then other things, the things that we look at with envy, the things that we think are impressive and praiseworthy in this world and think, well, I wish I was like them, the things that often might even tempt us away from God, are the very things that testify to the world what they're missing. Because this is what they're looking for, instead of this that you know. And that, doesn't that help us to take us to the point of going, what is our purpose in this world? Isn't it to show the world what it's missing? Who it's missing? Your friends, your family, how that is not the blessed life, but following Jesus is. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your limitless grace towards us. Help us to value what you value, to um, not see our inadequacies or our weaknesses as being signs of being despised by you, but as healthy reminders that how much we need you and how much you supply all our needs. Please protect us from foolish envy and help us to aspire to be the kind of people you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.